The Old Testament reading is from Isaiah 63, verses 7 to 9. I will recount the gracious deeds of the Lord, the praiseworthy acts of the Lord, because of all that the Lord has done for us, and the great favor to the house of Israel that he has shown them according to his mercy, according to the abundance of his steadfast love. For he said, surely they are my people, children who will not deal falsely, and he became their savior in all their distress. It was no messenger or angel, but his presence that saved them. In his love and in his pity, he redeemed them. He lifted them up and carried them all the days of old. This is the word of the Lord. Hear the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Luke. Glory to you, O Lord. After eight days had passed, it was time to circumcise the child, and he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel, before he was conceived in the womb. When the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it was written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male shall be designated as holy to the Lord. And they offered a sacrifice according to what is stated in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves for two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. This man was righteous and devout, looking forward to the consolation of Israel and the Holy Spirit rested on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. Guided by the Spirit, Simeon came into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what was customary under the law, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Master, now you are dismissing your servant in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. And the child's father and mother were amazed at what was being said about him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to his mother Mary, this child is destined for the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be opposed so that the inner thoughts of many will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul too. There was also a prophet, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was of great age, having lived with her husband seven years after her marriage, then as a widow to the age of 84. She never left the temple, but worshiped there with fasting and prayer night and day. At that moment, she came and began to praise God and to speak about the child to who all were looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise, praise to you, O Christ. Let's pray. Our God, we give you thanks for Jesus born in Bethlehem at Christmas, we give you thanks for the joy of your kingdom. We give you thanks for your word and for your spirit. 
And we pray now that as we uh, sit in this space of worship and of reflecting on your scriptures, we pray that you would be with us, that you would bless us with your presence, that you would open our eyes that we may behold the glory of Christ, and that you would fill us with the joy of your presence as we come now to your scriptures. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. Merry Christmas. Advent is over. Christmas season is now here. It's a season of fasting. It's a season of celebration as we remember God's faithfulness uh, to save us by coming to be born as one of us in this person, Jesus, this child born of Mary in Bethlehem, this Jesus whom we call Emmanuel, right? God with us, God in person in our world, Jesus who is the Messiah of Israel and the Savior of the world who lived and died and rose again. God's rescue of his people, of his world from ruin and sin and death and God's restoration of humanity and the world to sanity and health and reconciled relationship with God and with others. It's a time for rejoicing. Christmas is a season for rejoicing. And this morning, we're going to spend a little time reflecting on joy. During the Advent season, we reflected on some Advent words like hope and love and peace that come around this time of year uh, that often become fodder for kitsch and sentimentalism, but are also at the same time really robust, rich concepts that we find in the scriptures. And today, we'll do something similar now in the Christmas season with joy. What is joy? And how can we become more joyful? When you think of joy, what do you think of? Just think of, when you think of joy, what do you think of? You know, maybe some of you think of sweet moments with family. Maybe you had some of those over the holidays. I hope you did. I, I did. Um, maybe you think of someone like Marie Kondo who prompts you to ask as you hold everything you own, does this spark joy? And if it doesn't, throw it away. I need some more Marie Kondo in my life. I tend to be more in the pack rat uh, tribe, where my wife is more in the let's clean out the house tribe. So I, I, I can appreciate that I have much to learn from Marie. Um, all these are good and lovely things, right? There's all kinds of ways that we might fill out the picture of what joy is. But those versions of joy are not really the same as the picture of joy that we get in the scriptures. Those kinds of joy might better be described by a word like happiness or a word like pleasure, right? And those things are great. Happiness is great. Pleasure is great. We like those things. We want those things. Who, who wouldn't want to be happy? You should. Happiness is a good thing, but it's not the same as joy. And I, I, don't, and I don't think it's as good as joy. It's not quite of the same ilk. And sometimes I think our pursuit of happiness, and we know that our Society, our culture, even our country's laws are codified around this pursuit of happiness as being this an alienable right that we have, right? It's something that's, that's woven into the fabric of who we are as human beings. Our pursuit of happiness is a big deal to us. It's a big deal in our culture. But sometimes I think it might be more of a hindrance than a help in our quest for joy. Sometimes our pursuit of happiness might actually get in the way of our experience of joy. Why? Well, because happiness, unlike joy, is attached to our circumstances, right? 
It doesn't cohabitate comfortably with sadness. Happiness and sadness compete for the same real estate in your head and heart, right? It's, it's difficult to be happy and sad in the same, at the same time. They push each other out of the way, which is why the pursuit of happiness is often an endeavor to do what? Avoid pain and vulnerability? To protect ourselves? It's often a self-serving, self-guided mission that seeks to acquire for ourselves desirable circumstances that make us feel happy, right? And so sometimes the pursuit of happiness can involve tactics like ignoring hard things or escaping difficult relationships, or hoarding resources, or stuffing our lives full of fun experiences. All the things that you might file under the hashtag winning folder, right? Or the hashtag crushing it folder. Pursuit of happiness, it, it's a great strategy for getting really beautiful vacation photos. But it's not as effective a strategy for pursuing or cultivating joy. Because joy is really an altogether different animal, isn't it? Joy isn't a function of our circumstances like happiness is. Joy isn't fleeting and fickle the way happiness is. And unlike happiness, which can't figure out how to cohabitate with sadness, joy, joy, some of the most profound and beautiful and compelling experiences and expressions of joy happen in contexts of grief and loss. If you've ever been around someone who's suffered well, you know what that looks like. You know what that feels like. You know how profoundly beautiful that can be. C.S. Lewis talks about joy in contrast with happiness. He says, I call it joy, which is here a technical term and must be sharply distinguished from both happiness and pleasure. Joy, in my sense, has indeed one characteristic and one only in common with them, the fact that anyone who has experienced it will want it again. I doubt whether anyone who has tasted it would ever, if both were in his power, exchange it for all the pleasures in the world. But then joy is never in our power, and pleasure often is. And he goes on to say, I wonder sometimes whether all the pleasures are not substitutes for joy. During the Advent season, we reflected a little bit on Tish Warren's piece from the New York Times uh, where she says that our joy is trivialized if we do not first intentionally acknowledge the pain and wreckage of the world. And I think that's a profound statement and I think it's very important and instructive for us as we contemplate joy because joy isn't about ignoring the sad things, is it? And the extent to which we make joy out to be something like that, we do cheapen it. And we make joy at best like an empty sentiment that is fleeting. And at worst, something that's really horribly alienating to people whose difficulties, whose sadness are not so easily ignored or swept under the rug. But the kind of joy that God offers to us in Christ and the kind of joy that's described for us in the scriptures is really an altogether different thing. It's a richer, more robust, and beautiful kind of joy. And the scripture text we just read will help us consider what that is, and other texts from the scriptures as well uh, this morning will help us. But this song from Simeon that we just read in Luke 1, what we see is these themes of consolation and conflict 
travel together, don't they, in this psalm. Simeon, this man, is there, a devout man, a pious man, in Jerusalem, at the temple. And Joseph and Mary have come to bring Jesus there on his eighth day of life to be circumcised and to do all of the things that's required of them by the Jewish law. They're coming, they're offering their offering, they're coming to bring Jesus, uh, and, they're, and they're naming him. It's a feast that's often celebrated on January 1st by many in the church around the world, the feast of the holy name of Jesus, eight days after Christmas, when, when, it's, when we remember this moment where Jesus' parents give him the name that the angel Gabriel had already given him, Jesus, Savior, this name of this child as he's presented. And Simeon, this man who is there, he, he erupts in joy as this child is presented because he sees in this Christ child the one whom he's longed for for so long, the Messiah of Israel that he's watched for and waited for all the years of his long life. And he finally sees him. My eyes have seen the Savior. I can go in peace now. And he talks about the conflict that is to come. And as we read this story forward, we know of some of those conflicts, right? There's the immediate conflict where King Herod is going to freak out because he hears that there's this king that's born. And he's going to just go berserk and, and massacre children. And Jesus and his family will have to flee as refugees to Egypt to be safe. It's a horrific scene that's about to erupt. But of course, we know there's more, right? There's more hardship. There's more tragedy. There's more strife in the life of Jesus. In his adult life, you see him encounter rejection after rejection after rejection, ultimately to the cross itself, where he bleeds and dies and is shamefully put to death at the hands of both the Roman authorities and the Jewish authorities, and the whole story looks like a bloody tragedy until he rises again. Conflict is right at the heart of the story of Jesus. But he is the one whom Simeon rightly also identifies as the consolation of Israel. This peace figure. This love figure. This one who's come to set things right. This one who's come to restore God's reign on the earth and to restore the fortunes of God's people. He is the Christ. And we know that that moment is the one that has been anticipated all along in the scriptures. And Simeon, with eyes of faith, is able to perceive in this child, he's the one I've been waiting for. And he erupts in joy. But it's a joy that's not naive. It's a joy that's not cheap or empty or hollow. It's a joy that is rich and robust and powerful precisely because it's a joy that travels hand in hand with the sorrow of the world. It isn't undone by the sorrow, but rather it attends and accompanies the sorrow. It's a joy that actually touches the ground in the real world where we really live, not in some fanciful, fictional, fairy tale world. Joy. We see Simeon's joy. And in the life of Jesus, when we see him living in the earth, we see Jesus' joy. How does the writer of Hebrews describe Jesus' own experience of suffering? For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, even as he despised its shame. 
What does Jesus say to his disciples as he's talking to them in the the Gospel of John in this moment where he's saying, abide in me. I'm the vine and you are the branches. He says, all of these things I say to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. Joy. It's right at the heart of what Jesus himself experiences in his own human life and what he passes on to those who enter into life with him. And it's, it's what's expressed in the Psalms, Jesus' own prayers. If you think of Psalm 126 that we already read in our opening of worship, of those who sow in tears will reap with shouts of joy. Or Psalm 30, that the weeping may linger for the night, but joy comes in the morning. There's an anticipation that God will make good on his promise, and that that anticipation actually shapes the way we live with the sorrows of our real lives. There's an anticipatory character to joy. We see it in the life of Jesus, and we see it in the life that Jesus calls us into as we follow him. And one thing that I think is important for us to recognize as we contemplate joy is the same thing that we've contemplated as we've, uh, uh, that we've reflected on as we've contemplated hope and love and peace. That these things are not merely emotions, right? They're not merely feelings that may well up within us. They are that. That's part of it. But each of these things, hope, love, peace, and joy, is a practice that we take up by faith. Joy is something that God calls us to do, not just feel. The Apostle Paul, as he writes to the Philippian church, he commands them to rejoice. It's an instruction. And the reason that he can say that is because rejoicing is an actual discipline. It's like a choice. Not that you choose what you feel, right? But you do choose what you do so often. And there's a discipline of rejoicing that is a cultivating joy or a leaning into the joy God gives us as a gift in Christ that is part of what it means to follow Jesus into the world and to live like him and to be like him. And that's one of the things where I think we, we often miss joy. As we pursue happiness, we miss joy because what we don't realize is that joy is work. We expect joy to erupt passively in our lives when good things are happening. And maybe it does sometimes. But the kind of joy we're called to cultivate is a joy that is fundamentally a relational thing. It's something that we experience in connectivity with a God who gives the joy. A joyful God who gives joy. And nurturing the relationship is the work of rejoicing, of cultivating joy. There's work of relational engagement and there's work of remembrance and hope. This passage that we just read from Isaiah 63 comes from a a point in in the prophecy of Isaiah that's very forward-looking. It's looking to the future, and it's painting this beautiful vision of the world that God will bring, the restoration of all things. It is a beautiful picture. It's a joyful picture. And there's this moment in the middle in Isaiah 63 where Isaiah stops looking forward and looks back. It's a looking back to this moment of the Exodus in the story of Israel where God had dealt faithfully and powerfully on behalf of his people, where God had entered the fray and had done something, something significant. He had shown up and he had acted. 
And it's in remembrance of God's faithfulness in the past that the prophet can look forward and hope and say, as God has been faithful to act, so will God act again. And as Christians, so much of our living presently in an experience of joy, our present act of rejoicing, is wedded to our remembrance. Remembering God's faithfulness to show up and act in the past. What God has initiated in Jesus, he will carry on to completion. He will finish what he started. That the story that you and I are caught up in, the story of the world, of God's rescuing of all things and restoring all things that he's included you in, he's included me in, that story actually will come fully to its conclusion. Your hope is not in vain. Your love is not in vain. Your rejoicing is not naive. God is faithful. As he's acted in the past, so he will again. As we think about that Psalm 30, that line, that weeping may linger for the night, but joy comes with the morning. I think there's a, a way to read that psalm in union and communion with Christ where we realize that what God has done in Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus is that God has made the morning, the joyful morning of resurrection life. He's made that day to break in the middle of the night where the sorrow lingers. And that where you and I live today, presently, is both in the night of sorrow and in the day of joy. And that's what it means to live as a follower of Jesus at this intersection of heaven and earth, as those who follow Jesus into the world and live in union and communion with God and live in loving relation to our neighbors. And as we feel truly the sorrow of the tragedies of the world, as we experience the dark night of the soul, as we walk together through the hardships, as we experience the uncertainty, as we anticipate the diagnosis that we might get, or the court date that looms, or as we think about all the things on the horizon that break us, we don't just sit in the night, but we live in the day because we live in this moment when God has come to meet us in Jesus. And the day of hope has dawned already. Joy is not just about remembering, though. It's about anticipating. It's about looking forward. It's about anticipating that future that God promises. And we see that in Simeon. We see that in Isaiah. We see that in these texts where there's this ability to live in the present, hopefully and joyfully, precisely because of the ability to attach what's happening now to the future that God promises. Looking forward with these eyes of faith, how is it that Simeon is able to recognize in the Christ child? The promise of God rests on him. Well, we know that the Spirit is on Simeon. We know that this is a gift of God that God gives him. But it's not just some magical gift that appears out of nowhere, as if the Spirit just drops on this guy out of nowhere and gives him magic eyes, where he's able to see something no one else could ever see. It's far more organic than that. Simeon is able to see the hope resting on this child precisely because the Spirit 
is upon him and that all the days of his life he has been studying the scriptures and praising God and worshiping in the temple. This is an old, wise, devout man who has spent his life feasting on the word of God and anticipating the day of the Lord. His imagination has been shaped by God's promise. His eyes have been tuned to see what it would look like when God shows up precisely because he has been abiding in God all these years. And the Spirit rests upon him and takes all those things and gives him eyes of faith to see the joy in his midst. And there's something profoundly instructive for you and for me in that. That God takes these things as we abide in him, as we, as we do sit with the scriptures, as we do engage in the worship of the church. God shapes our ability to see the present through eyes of faith. And that is something we absolutely need. Do you ever find yourself in relationships where you just feel stuck? Do you ever find yourself in a space of work where you just feel stuck? Or do you ever find yourself reading the news and feel like it's just chaotic? It all feels too big. It all feels like it's this ocean of injustice and conflict and problem. There's just, it's just too much. What could possibly make a difference? Do you ever feel that? Do you ever feel the weight of the enormity of the brokenness of the world? And as you feel the weight of the enormity of the brokenness of the world, do you ever feel the particularity of it in your own life, in your own struggles with your own habits, in your own relationships, in your own hopes and dreams? What would it look like to live in those present moments, this present moment, anticipating? The future of God, remembering the past faithfulness of God, the looking back and the looking forward that enables you and me to be present right now with joy and not simply with sorrow or not simply with some sort of superficial happiness that we can only achieve by way of ignoring the hard things. What would it look like to live today as a people of joy. The Apostle Paul describes joy as the fruit of God's Spirit, not like something that we may or may not have, but as something that belongs to the people of God by virtue of our connectedness to God. And I think if you've ever known a joyful person, you know how contagiously beautiful joy is, don't you? you can, do you know a joyful person? Like somebody who's truly alive with joy. Don't you love being with them? I do. I have some of those people in my life. I want to be one of those people in your life. Some of you are those people in my life. Joy is about as beautiful and contagious as anything could possibly be. And the beauty of the invitation of God to us in Christ is that his spirit gives us joy. It's not just something that we may or may not feel it's something that we're called to put on by faith. Rejoicing is something we're called to do. One of the great tragedies right now is that we as Christians are known in our country not primarily as contagiously joyful people who are known for 
our love. But our public reputation, we are primarily known for what? The fights we get into and the things we're against. That's our reputation. And there's no wonder that nobody wants to hang out with us. It's not simply the offense of the gospel. It's the offense of our joylessness. The gospel's offensive. And it will, like, like Simeon says, right? It, the, Jesus will be the one for the rising and the falling of many. The gospel is itself offensive. It's also beautiful. But most of what's offensive about Christians is not the gospel. <laughs> it's us. There's this joy deficit that we live with because we get so fixated on the wrong things. It's not the remembering and the anticipating and the abiding, but it's the fastidious rule-keeping. It's the line-drawing. It's the politicking. It's all the things that fracture and fragment the world, not the loving, beautiful, powerful, reconciling work of a God who has made peace between us and him and peace between us and our neighbor by the blood of the cross of Christ and has given us a new life in the earth and calls us to erupt with joy, to live with joy, to embrace our neighbor and to walk in the ways of Jesus. Have you ever thought about the fact that the signs that Jesus gives us as a people, in baptism and the supper, are these joyful signs? Baptism, it's this bath that reminds us of Jesus' own baptism, where we hear the words pronounced over Jesus, you are my beloved son, I love you. And you hear those same words pronounced over the finality of Jesus' life, well done, good and faithful servants. Enter the courts of your master. You hear those same words pronounced over you, not because you deserve it, but because you were loved first by God. That's an incredible thing. And this meal that we're called to, this meal, this feast of bread and wine, where we're fed with God's own self, it's, it's a joy feast. Where we're called to feast with God, not because we are fit to come, but simply because he invited you. And the reason your neighbor gets to be there is not because your neighbor is fit to come, but simply because God has invited your neighbor. And we come as guests to the feast, and that is an incredibly joyful thing. Do you know how loved you are? Do you know how loved your neighbor is? Do you know how loved the difficult people in your life are? How loved the wayward people in your life are? Do you know the joy that comes from being embraced by the God of love? who holds you to himself in Jesus and feeds you with his own life. That God who loves you is a joyful God. Sometimes I think the reason that we as Christians are not known for our joy is because we don't think God is known for his joy. We don't think of God as joyful. We think of God as angry or particular or whatever. We fixate on the wrong things. We don't recognize the lavish and abundant love of God. Think about this. Dallas Willard has this beautiful passage, this beautiful chapter in his book, The Divine Conspiracy, where he talks about how you and I will spend money on a fish tank. We'll spend a bunch of money and all this time setting up a fish tank to buy these five tropical fish that swim in 30 gallons of water or 50 gallons of water. 
the little rocks and the lights. And we'll marvel at this thing. Or you'll sit in the doctor's waiting room and you'll like watch the fish or whatever. We, we, we love it. We, we delight in it. Willard says, God has all the oceans of the world. All the fish. All the forests. All the beaches. All the mountains. All the people. All the families. All the loved ones. They all belong to him. Why do we not think of him as being a joyful, delighted father? Delighting in this creation that he calls good. He's a joyful God. And he loves us and he loves this place. That's the whole point of why he sent his son. That's the whole point of Christmas. That's the whole point of Easter. That's the whole point of the story. He loves us and he loves this place. He's a joyful God. And this is really important. If we're going to be a people of joy, this is what we need to know. The joy that is yours in Christ, the joy that God gives us as a gift in Christ, is God's own joy shared with you. God's own joy shared with me. That's the joy that animated Jesus' own earthly frame as he lived in the earth. It was the joy of God himself embodied in our world and shared with his disciples. And Jesus says, abide in me. I say these things to you so that your joy may be complete as my joy is in you. Joy is a function of being relationally connected to God who is the source of all joy. And sometimes the reason that our pursuit of happiness takes us away from joy rather than toward it is because it takes us away from God rather than toward him. But the beautiful invitation of the one who calls us, the one who's come to us in Jesus, is to say, what I've called you to is a life of joy. My joy. The joy I experience for you and for this world and for your neighbor. My joy in you is yours. Psalm 16 says of God, in your presence there is fullness of joy. You show me the way of life. My prayer for us this Christmas is simply that we would know a little bit more of that joy that we would draw a little bit closer to God who is the source of joy. That we would recognize that he himself is the delight. That he is the one who is to be most loved. And that when we attach our joy to him, when we desire him, we're never sent away empty. But what begins to spring up in our life is that kind of enduring joy a fortified joy that doesn't shatter when tragedy strikes, but transforms it all together and makes our own sorrows and our own tragedies part of a story of healing and redemption that the comfort we begin to know is the comfort we begin to share with others. And that the joy that is in Christ becomes the joy that is in us, that becomes the joy that is in our neighbors. That's the vision. Rejoice in the Lord. May God give us grace to know something of his joy this Christmas. Let's pray. Our God, we 
give you thanks for your son, Jesus. We give you thanks for the joy of your kingdom. We give you thanks for these songs of praise that we find in Simeon and Anna and others that we meet in your scriptures. Would you draw us near to yourself? Would you hold us fast to yourself? And would you renew us in our remembrance, in our anticipation, and in our abiding, that we might become more and more a people of joy, that our mouths would be filled with laughter, that our cup would overflow, and that we would live in the abundance and the joy of your presence rather than in the scarcity that we often feel and think that we're living out of in our own lives. Meet us, we ask, and renew us in your presence that we may know something of the fullness of joy. Through Christ our Lord. Amen.